again. Everyone here has heard of Trinidad, Colorado, no doubt, or Trinidad down in the West Indies, Tobago, and other of the islands down there. You're familiar with Trinity College, I imagine. Certainly there is no more fundamental doctrine to the Catholic or the Protestant religion than the concept of God in three persons or the Trinity. People lost their lives in the Spanish Inquisition for belief in the doctrine of Arianism, as well as many other doctrines, usually named after the person who did the writing or the teaching. And one of the things which led the so-called Holy Father in Rome and the so-called Fathers of the Romish Church on a righteously indignant quest to ferret out the last little bit of rank, rotten heresy from the Roman Catholic Church was the denial of the Trinity. One way that we can perhaps understand some of the prophecies that have to do with the persecution on God's church, those who observe the weekly Sabbath, those who observe the annual holy days, those who reject some of the old pagan doctrines such as the immortality of the soul, going to heaven instantly when you die, burning forever and ever in hell fire that of all of those, the one which is going to bring the most persecution is denial is the denial of the Trinity. It is the reason why I was not allowed on CBN. They made it very clear, although they refused to put it into writing, I imagine fearing a little bit of then the Fairness Doctrine and perhaps FCC regulations, said, well, you see, Mr. Armstrong's program cannot be on the Christian broadcasting network because, you see, we are a Christian broadcasting network. They didn't go on to say the obvious, that obviously they think we are not Christian because we reject the concept of the Trinity. I want to see if you can understand this. This is the Catholic Encyclopedia. I have my own copy at home, my own volume, entire set of them, about 30. I want to read just a couple of excerpts from the article Holy Ghost, a synopsis of the dogma. The doctrine of the Catholic Church concerning the Holy Ghost forms an integral part of her teaching on the mystery of the Holy Trinity, of which St. Augustine, speaking with diffidence, says, In no other subject is the danger of erring so great, or the progress so difficult, or the fruit of a careful study so appreciable. The essential points of the dogma may be resumed in the following propositions. The Holy Ghost is the third person of the Blessed Trinity. Though really distinct as a person from the Father and the Son, he is consubstantial with them. Being God like them, he possesses with them one and the same divine essence or nature. Now listen to this. He proceeds not by way of generation, but by way of spiration from the Father and the Son together as from a single principle. Now, they do not say that the Son proceeds from the Father and the Holy Spirit together, or that the Father proceeds from the Holy Spirit and the Son together by way of a single principle. But if you can understand that language, that's what they say about the Holy Spirit. A little later on in the same article, proceeding both from the Father and the Son, the Holy Ghost nevertheless proceeds from them as from a single principle. The truth is, at the very least, insinuated in the passage of John 16:15, where Christ establishes a necessary connection between his own sharing in all the Father has and the procession of the Holy Ghost. 
Hence it follows indeed that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the two other persons, not insofar as they are distinct, but inasmuch as their divine perfection is numerically one. Everybody understand that perfectly clearly and, and just uh, plainly and lucidly and simply? You would be amazed at some of the things you read in the Catholic Encyclopedia justifying some of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Under letter C of this same article, it is likewise an article of faith that the Holy Ghost does not proceed like the second person of the Trinity by way of generation. Not only is the second person alone called Son in the Scriptures, not only is he alone said to be begotten, but he is also called the only Son of God. The ancient symbol that bears the name of St. Anastasia states expressly that the Holy Ghost, quote, comes from the Father and from the Son, not made, not created, not generated, but proceeding, end of quote. As we are utterly incapable of otherwise fixing the meaning of the mysterious mode affecting this relation of origin, we apply to it the name spiration, the signification of which is principally negative and by way of contrast in the sense that it affirms a procession peculiar to the Holy Ghost and exclusive of filiation. Everybody following me along now very, very clearly, plainly, sagaciously, eruditiously, and um, linguistically? I think so. But though we distinguish absolutely and essentially between generation and spiration, it is a very delicate and difficult task to say what the difference is. End of quote. I mean, that's from the Catholic Encyclopedia. A very delicate and difficult task to say what the difference is. Now that is very erudite. When you read the articles under Trinity... They are equally erudite and equally confusing. You will search the Roman Catholic Encyclopedia in vain to find whether the Holy Spirit has arms, chest, torso, head, legs, feet, hands, eyes, ears, nose, or a face. But you can search the Bible and you can see that God the Father has all of those, as Christ the Son also does. But in no case do you see the Holy Spirit of God described as a person, a being, a separate creation, creature, or essence as distinct from the Father and the Son. And yet the belief in the so-called Holy Trinity is so deeply a part of the Roman Catholic and the Protestant religion that it may be said to be absolutely the primary doctrine of the Western world of Christianity. Because after all, if you don't know what God is, and God in three persons is what God is to them, then you don't know anything else. And so all of these names that I'm talking about, I knew a young lady whose parents later on learned the truth about it and changed her name to Trinity, but originally her name was Trinity. Because, you know, people have actually named their children after that doctrinal concept. If you will turn to the fourth chapter of the book of John, beginning to read... In verse 22, where Jesus was answering the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, You worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour comes, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Same word, pneuma, that is everywhere used of the Holy Spirit, which is holy, pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God... A spirit. Now, the word is was added by the translators. It is italicized, and it is indicated, because that is really what is meant. God, a spirit, or God is a spirit. 
And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But let's understand that even etymologically, if you go into the origin of the word spirit, as we see the Roman Catholic Church using the word spiration, our word inspiration, inspired, expiration, and so on, all has to do with spirit, but spirit as being synonymous with air or with breath or with the life principle which is contained in the breath of man. When you expire or exhale, you are said to allow the spirit or the air to come out of your body. If you were to study the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, as I have done, under the article Spirit, you will find that it has far more to do with malt liquors, with scotch, with brandy, with whiskey, and with all other spirits showing the entire distillation process and merely shows a little of the etymology of the origin of the English word than it has anything to do whatsoever with a religious doctrine. Now, the Bible uses many different analogies for spirit because, after all, you're not dealing with something that is flesh. It is not material. It's not of this physical universe. It's not of our earth. It is not flora or fauna. It is not solid. It is not matter or liquid or even air. And so the Bible uses those things which come closest in the elements that we can know to that which we cannot know, such as water, wind, and fire to describe the Holy Spirit, what it is, how it acts, what it does. In every case, we are dealing with something that belongs in a completely different dimension, and we're trying vainly sometimes to use an English expression which helps us understand something that cannot be understood intellectually, because you cannot understand a spirit having form and shape yet being essence and able to travel at the instantaneous fraction of a millisecond of the speed of light, much faster than the speed of light travels through space, to be instantly from one part of the universe to the other, defying even the travel of light, which after all is energy giving off waves, is it not? And therefore is physical in one sense, and travels in a physical medium because the universe is physical, if you look at it that way. They used to think it was filled with ether, which they've long since abandoned and found that that was absolutely untrue, though it was believed when my father was a boy growing up. Let's investigate each one of those analogies that the Bible uses, because there are many of them. Fire is used continually in the Word of God as an analogy of God's Holy Spirit, that we are tried in fiery trial, etc. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that your faith, though tried with fire, etc., shall be found at the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. What is fire? Does anybody know? Well, really, you don't know, do you? Well, the dictionaries don't know either, and neither do the encyclopedias. They merely call it combustion. Combustion with flagrigation, with flame, something that burns. But it is some kind of a process, and you can't really call it, in a sense, chemical, that gives off heat, light, energy, various types of waves of light, which is transmitted at different frequencies depending upon the intensity of the flame, reduces that which it is burning upon or feeding upon, even though it be solid stone in the magma of the earth beneath us, or the core of the earth, melting rock, melting metal, such as heavy iron or steel, as you know, in the huge Bessemer ovens where the slag is burnt off, so fire at once 
can be an explosive substance which can explode in a very volatile mixture of butane, methane, ammonia, whatever, and air, as well as gasoline and some of the exotic fuels that we use in modern propulsion, jet fuels and the like. And it is only going to be present as long as there is oxygen and the substance upon which it is feeding. But what is it really? Nobody knows. We know how to cause it. We know how to bring it about. We know how kinetic energy can cause our hands to burn through friction. We know that the Indians could rub sticks together. A boy can get a little bow and put the bowstring wrapped around one very sharp piece of wood about like a pencil and put it in a little hole in a board and by rapidly running the bow back and forth, turning that little stick faster than you can turn it in your hands can create smoke and put a little tinder on there and he can have a fire. I used to delight in taking a very powerful uh, looking glass outside in my backyard in a sunny day in Oregon and see little brown leaves and actually burn my initials in them and burn my name in boards and things like that and watch the smoke coming up as this little pinprick of light would slowly etch my initials or my name in a piece of wood and the sun so concentrated would actually burn that substance. But fire, as I mentioned, in a Bessemer oven burning off the slag and the impurities from some metal or ore purifies. It cleanses, but it also destroys. <clears throat> so, by analogy, God uses fire merely as a representative form of God's Holy Spirit so we can understand a little bit of how it acts and what it does. It's very difficult to understand what it is. It's much easier to understand what it does. And what about air? And after all, what is air or wind but the mantle of a mixture of many, many gases that is actually a part of this Earth's atmosphere, lithosphere, rather, bathosphere, and atmosphere or stratosphere, and the air that we breathe is the source of our life. The most immediate source is air. You can be deprived of air for probably one, two, at the most four minutes, and you are dead. Water will come to you later. You can be deprived of that for perhaps 40 days or longer, and you are dead. But air is a life-giving substance because of the oxygen that your lungs are capable of determining the difference between oxygen and all these other gases, including carbon dioxide, and absorbing the oxygen and putting it into little bitty platelets and sending it to all parts of your body so that you stay alive. That nice cherry red look that people get when they breathe a little too rapidly. I remember we used to have a speech class in Ambassador College. I taught many different speech classes, including the intermediate speech class, and we used to throw a four-minute impromptu at these people who would be sitting there. They wouldn't know that they're supposed to be called on, and we'd just feed them one word and say, all right, we want you to work a speech around that one word, and you just go nonstop for four minutes. Well, one fellow was sitting in his chair, and he was getting ready for his turn, and he was practicing his deep breathing exercises. So we taught them, you know, to hold your mouth like you had a small hot potato in it and breathe way back on the hard palate and expand the rib cage and then blow out the air. Well, he's doing this real rapidly. He was relaxing. So it came his turn. I called his name, and he stood up and fell flat in his face and absolutely passed out on the classroom floor. A bunch of guys gathered around and, you know, rubbing his face and his wrists and trying to revive him because he had taken so much of that oxygen into his brain that he, he just felt lightheaded and giddy and passed out. So the life-giving gas that is oxygen gives life, but on the other hand, it also can destroy. 
I have never been in the midst of a tornado, except I saw or heard one go by about a half mile from me one time across the lake, run ashore, beached the boat, got in underneath the biggest tree I could find, dug down next to the root and was actually hanging onto the root, and the tree was bigger around than the pulpit, and I was feeling the tree moving behind my back. And it sounded like a runaway freight train across the lake. Big green limbs and everything going. And the wind went a complete 180-degree shift, so that well, though we beached it in the lee, by the time the thing had passed, we, we were on the, the windward shore, and the waves had sloshed over it, and it sunk. It actually dragged it off the beach, filled it with water, dragged it off the beach, back into the, the depth of the lake, scattered our fishing equipment around, and so on. It was frightening beyond belief. That's as close as I've ever been to a tornado, although some have come by within a few miles of my home. Very, very frightening very awesome to think what wind or air can do. Now, Jesus used air as a type of spirit. Let's turn to the third chapter of John, just back one chapter. And beginning in verse 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except the man be born of water, we've already used water, I haven't gotten to that, you know, to go into great detail, but I've mentioned that it is a type of the Spirit of God. Water baptism is a type of the cleansing of the human conscience and mind by the action of God's Holy Spirit and God's forgiveness. The water only gets you wet. But because water is a solvent, because it is a cleansing agent, and because it is the most common substance next to air that is on this earth, we're called the watery planet, about eight-tenths of the surface of the earth is water. God uses water as an analogy of God's Holy Spirit. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. There is not a church in the Protestant world or the Roman Catholic world that understands that simple phrase in English. They reject it, they refuse it, they are blinded, they are ignorant, or they're confused, or they're deliberately uh, ignorant, whatever they are, they just refuse to accept the plain English that when you are born of God, what you become is spirit. You are composed of spirit. No, they say you already have a spirit inside of you that goes off to heaven when you die. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, or where it will, and you can hear the sound of it moaning around the eaves of a building. But you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is every one that is born of the Spirit, because even as water is colorless, odorless, and tasteless, so wind or air is absolutely invisible. If you could see it, you would be blind, because the molecules of air are pressing against the lens on your eye right now, or the cornea of your eye. So when you become a spirit, when you are born of God and you become a spirit, what are you like? You're like the wind. You're invisible. You don't have any constraints, as we do now, of having a certain amount of energy and of sinew and tissue and muscle and amount of energy in your stomach, the food that you eat, meaning that you can only walk with a step so long or leap so far or climb so high or run so fast. But when you become a member of God's family and you're born of the Holy Spirit, you are then a member of God's family and are, as he is, spirit, composed of spirit. Nicodemus answered and said, How can these things be? How can this be? Because, of course, this was the very first time in all of world history that anyone had used the phrase, born again. It's very common today. It is so commonplace that it's blasphemous, and the people who use it the most commonly understand it the least. 
the so-called Pentecostal church that talks about, I'm a born-again Christian. They talk about the Holy Ghost. It's all one word, Holy Ghost. A lot of kids grow up not even knowing it is two words. They just talk about Holy Ghost revival. We were down there at a Holy Ghost revival. He's a Holy Ghost preacher. Talks about being born again. I'm a born again Christian. Jimmy Carter was supposed to have been born again. They don't know what they're talking about. Nicodemus said, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Are you a master, a teacher, a rabbi in Israel, and you do not know these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. We're eyewitnesses. We tell you the facts. We tell you A and B and C and 1 and 2 and 3, and you don't believe us. You don't understand. You reject what we tell you. If I have told you earthly things and you won't accept it, and you don't believe it, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven. And the entire Protestant world echoes, You're wrong, Jesus. You're a liar, Jesus. You're lying, Jesus. Why, millions have ascended up to heaven. Elijah is there. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets, all the saints, all the patriarchs, Noah, Abel, whom Cain slew, they're all up there. So the Protestant world calls Christ a liar and doesn't believe the plain statement of the Scriptures or Christ himself. No man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in or from or of heaven, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Not something we are born with, not something we have now. But if through belief in Christ, repentance, baptism, conversion, the receiving of God's Holy Spirit, and ultimately being born of God, we are then to inherit eternal life. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, and all we human beings in it, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, read, be destroyed, rot, disintegrate, disappear, but have, on the other hand, contrasting with that, everlasting life. Not a question of have everlasting life in a different place, heaven or hell, but have everlasting life. I won't read all the rest of that. But notice in verse 33, Jesus said, He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God has sent speak the words of God. For God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. So God gives the Spirit in measureless quantities to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, as you will see in the article on the Trinity and in the appendices and some of the notes in Bullinger's Companion Bible, and if you want to research it through Strong or Young or some of the other exhaustive concordances. The Spirit is said to flow. It is said to be like rivers of living water pouring or flowing out of a man in good works and good deeds. It is said to be poured out. It is said to fall upon many people at the same time. The analogy of wind, fire, water is all used in the Bible of the Holy Spirit of God. Let's go to Acts, the first chapter, since one week from Sunday is the day of Pentecost, which commemorates the birthday of the New Testament Church of God, and of course is the commemoration of that time when the Holy Spirit of God was made generally available to all of mankind. And at the house of Cornelius, Peter was forced 
to admit that God was also making the Holy Spirit available to the Gentile races. He said, beginning in verse 6, when they were come together and asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel, Acts 1, he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power. Now, the Greek word here is dunamis, from which we take our word dynamite, dynamic, dynamics, and so on. But the Greek word dunamis, from which we take dynamo, dynamite, means power, force, energy. Etymology is a fascinating study because every English word is merely some old Anglo-Saxon word, some Teutonic or Germanic word, some French word or Dutch word or some other combination of several words which has an earlier origin and has earlier meaning in some other language which came probably through basically Indo-Aryan, as they say, sources from Central Europe and then eventually all the way back to the Middle East. And believe it or not, there are traces of Hebrew even in the English language. So the word power, force, dynamic energy is exactly what they were to receive. You are to receive force, dynamism, power, energy, a life-giving energy. After that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. He was taken up out of their sight, and they were told then, of course, that he would come in the same manner as he had gone. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, it says in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost means merely 50th, it has been erroneously said to mean, quote, count 50, end quote. It doesn't mean to count. It means the 50th was fully come, or being fulfilled. They were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly, and of course as emphasized in the booklet or the article on the subject of tongues, it was not something that very gradually was whipped up. It did not come out of the glossa or the... Uh, epiglottis, or the throat, or the voice box of human beings, a sound came not from human mouths or men's lips, but from heaven. And it sounded not like babble or gibberish, but like a mighty rushing wind, in other words, a tornado or a hurricane. And it filled all the house where they were sitting, which must have been a phenomenal thing. If you right now, we can hear what? A little hum in the background from the fans and the air conditioning system. But if it got so loud, it was a din and a roar, and yet you looked around and nothing was moving. The leaves and the fronds on the plants here were not moving. The fans were not turning. The women's hair was perfectly still. But it sounded like a roaring, a rushing, mighty wind. And suddenly you began to see men up there at the maybe porch of Solomon or in one of the big courts of the temple, standing above a teeming crowd of several thousand people who appeared to be wearing a crown of flickering flame. And every one of them had flames just flickering on their heads, but their hair was not being singed or burnt up. It would be an awesome thing. And there appeared unto them equally distributed or evenly divided. The abysmal mistranslation of 1611 in the King James English of cloven tongues, as if it were the forked tongue of a snake, is a blasphemous, unfortunate mistake. It has absolutely nothing to do with the original word, the original Greek phrase. Look it up in the diaglot. Don't take my word for it. Look it up in the commentaries. Look it up in other modern English versions. It is equally divided, equally distributed. Tongues, meaning in the same sense that we use the English word tongue, tongues of flame, a tongue of fire, 
the tongue as the organ in your mouth or tongue as the language you speak. It has several different meanings. I speak the English tongue. I speak the Spanish tongue. I eat a cow's tongue. Well, I don't eat it. I don't like to. But I have a tongue in my mouth. It had to do with merely the distribution equally of flickering flames or tongues of fire which were on the head of each of the apostles. It was like as of fire. So in this case, the Holy Spirit manifested itself as a visible flame. Now, on another occasion, the Holy Spirit actually manifested itself as a gentle, lovely, white-winged dove and seemed to come down and to sit and to land upon Jesus Christ at the time of his baptism. A docile, soft-eyed, beautiful, little, harmless dove, which is always universally, even on some of the national shields of many great nations and states, a symbol of peace and of tranquility. Here it is fire. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you see, here it is like liquid. You fill a vessel or a glass with liquid. And they are all filled. So the Holy Spirit is poured out. And as if they are a vessel to receive it, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other glossa, languages, tongues, meaning synonymously languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now, when all of this was noised abroad, as people will rush out into the streets and out into the various alleyways and knock on doors and say, guess what's going along, what's happening here, the multitude came together and were dumbfounded, confounded, because every man, every individual in this crowd of thousands heard them, every one of them, one by one, which we can absolutely demonstrate in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of confusion. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. One man spoke at a time. It very clearly says that the most three should speak, and that by course, so that there is no confusion, meaning in proper order in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 14. Every man heard them, not all at once, not babbling, not twelve speak, uh, people babbling in all kinds of languages. One man having the attention of the audience, speaking. Dozens of languages, every man hearing that one man, James, Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Simon, Peter, John, all the rest of them, speaking as if to him in his language. They were amazed, they marveled, they said one to another, listen, aren't these people Galileans from up there with that dialectic kind of Hebrew that they speak up there in northern Galilee? And how do we hear every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? From Parthia, from Media, from Elam, dwellers in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia. Each of these was a dialect or even a distinctly different language. And Egypt and in parts of Libya around Cyrene and strangers from Rome and Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our languages. You'd have to go back and count those up. And that's not all that were there. That's merely a representative group to find out what kind of a fantastic miracle this was. We hear them speak in our languages the wonderful works of God. Now, when you hear about the works of God, what, what are you hearing? We will see by getting a little synopsis of a part of only one sermon what it was these men were emphasizing and what the works of God they were hearing was really all about. They were all amazed and were in doubt, 
because people don't normally just instantly leap to some, you know, some great conviction. They were going to withhold judgment, and they were, like most crowds, wanting to interrogate each other. Do you hear what he's saying? What do you think about it? You know, some person you're with who is a friend from your hometown, you want to get his opinion first. So they're all talking back and forth. What does this mean? And there's always a wiseacre. There's always some character there. So here and there, there were a few wiseacres, and they said, mocking, they're full of new wine. They've been at the wine a little early. It's still green. They've been getting at the mezcal when it's still pulque. You know, it hasn't fully uh, fermented yet. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all of you that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and listen to my words, for these are not drunken. Important point now I want to make. These are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. The wine shops were closed tight. It was still the morning. There was no way for anybody to get at any wine in any public meeting whatsoever. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and you can go back and read it in the book of Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit. How can any rational, logical human mind misunderstand that statement? and create out of that the concept the concept of a wraith-like or ghost-like third person of a trinity. Is Christ poured out? Is that the analogy that is ever used in the Bible? Is one of the persons of the Godhead poured out? Why no, never. It does talk about Christ in you, that spiritually, supernaturally, through the Holy Spirit of God, the very mind of Christ, that is his spirit, his attitude, his nature, can come to take up residence inside of your mind. But again, we speak of a different dimension and something that we can only hope to aspire to by analogy, by metaphor, by inadequate words which help us to understand a dimension in which we do not live or move. I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vaporous smoke. And that's talking about some of the horrible plagues and the death of tens of thousands of people, which you see in the 19th and 20th chapters of the book of Revelation. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just as a mindless uh, kind of a slogan, but actually in heartfelt repentance and with all of the knowledge of who and what he was, what he stood for, what he taught, why he died, why he has been resurrected, and who he is as a high priest and as a Savior. You men of Israel... Hear these words, and I won't read it all, but then he began to talk about the entire process of the illegal delivering of Jesus into the hands of sinners, the beating of Jesus Christ, the analogy of David and his prophecies, of the fact that David is dead and buried and his sepulcher remained with them unto that day, that David is not in the heavens. And finally he began to conclude that Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom they had crucified, has been made both Lord and Christ. So what did Peter talk about? He talked about the fact of the life, the works, the gospel, the ministry, 
the illegal beating, the crucifixion, the absolute death, three days and three nights, and the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the works of God. Not a lot of esoterica. He wasn't appealing to anybody's emotions. He was dealing with a series of facts. He was talking about three and one half years of happenings. He's talking about what occurred, what was, what took place, and what they saw, what they heard, what they felt, what they experienced. So the definite major point I want to make is, and many people are completely confused on the charge about drunkenness, is that they charged that these men were drunken not because of the way they sounded or the way they acted, but because of what they said. They said, you must be drunk to say somebody was resurrected from the dead. Not because they were ecstatic or they were uttering gibberish or jumping over chairs or rolling on the floor or biting their tongue, but because of what they said. And almost universally, the Pentecostal religion and tens of millions of people who have gone along with those ideas would expound to you that chapter that they accused them of being drunken because they were reeling, they were under the spirit, they were ecstatic, they were beside themselves, they were filled with emotion. And so it is not that they say they were drunken because of the fantastic, almost incredible, unbelievable things they were saying but they charged that it was because of the way they were acting. Not true. The charge of drunkenness was because of what they said. Now when they heard this, they who were willing to listen, not the wiseacres or the doubters, were pricked in their heart, their conscience, and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God. Probably if the Bible had not been written until the modern age, after the days of Thomas Edison, there would be different analogies used. In our English language, we use a lot of analogies concerning electricity, for example, or even nuclear energy now, and other forces and energies with which we can come uh, to know in chemical laboratories and so on. We use the word, for example, it was simply electrifying, meaning something that was just uh, attention-getting and something that was really exciting to you. Or we, were, we will say, I was positively shocked. Well, that's an electrical term. You plug your fingers into the socket and you've got a shock, meaning a blow to the imagination or the mind. We will say, why, her eyes lit up, meaning the lighting of a light bulb. And we talk about people whose eyes have lit up. And you will see in cartoons, they will show a light bulb, somebody pulls the chain, and it goes blink, and it's on, which represents an idea over somebody's head. Someone will say, that really turns me on. It's like pulling a switch, turning a switch, pushing a button, and the light illuminates. So we use the electrical analogies. Or, she is said to be positively glowing. And many other expressions, like someone will say, that was really funny, I really got a charge out of that talking about electrical charge, electrical energy. Probably God would have used electricity, if it had been known in that day, as another very good analogy of God's Holy Spirit, because in the same way that Jesus Christ said, 
When a man comes unto Christ and receives God's Holy Spirit, it is as if out of his belly flows rivers of living water. The word belly, really uh, the word bowels, which the Apostle Paul uses about on three different occasions, I suppose, bowels of mercies and so on, a kind of an unfortunate term in the old King James English. It really ought to be translated innermost being. It means the depth of your heart. It means a soulful, deeper than casual emotional response so that if deeds, actions, thoughts, works are flowing out from your innermost being, it is connoting utter sincerity, not superficiality. When the Holy Spirit of God causes you to produce the fruits of God's Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in a moment, and I remind you that the fruits of God's Holy Spirit are not habits. The fruits of God's Holy Spirit in Acts 5.22 does not, that entire series of the very wonderful attributes of God's Holy Spirit is not defining human habits. It is defining human deeds. Always done with a motivation which comes from the innermost being or the innermost part of your heart. Let's go to Luke 11, 11 to 14 for just a moment. We used to always use this scripture in counseling people for baptism because of what it says about the Father willing to give His Holy Spirit to them that love Him and obey Him. If a son, a child, your beloved son, asks bread of any of you that is a father, if he's hungry, crying because his stomach is hurting and he wants something to eat, do you hand him a rock? Do you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, do you deceive him and give him a snake that would kill him and hurt him? Or if he asks for an egg, do you offer him a poisonous spider of some kind or a scorpion? If you then, since you are evil, carnal, automatically know how to give good gifts unto your own children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Does that sound to you like that's describing a third person of the Godhead? Isn't it interesting that in the Protestant and the Catholic theology, the Protestants going along with the Catholics in every part of it, like the doxology and the Apostles' Creed and the fundamental concept of the Trinity, as in the books about Blessed Trinity and Holy, 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 etc., and Trinity College and on and on, the Anglican Church is very, very strong on the subject of the Trinity. Isn't it amazing that they always tend to portray the Holy Spirit as the hooded specter, so to speak. Cartoonists will portray death as a kind of a hooded, cloaked specter. Maybe almost you see a part of a skull, deeply set, empty sockets, and a wicked, gleaming grin. And always in Protestant and Catholic theology, the Holy Spirit is depicted as almost wraith-like, ghost-like, like a specter never as standing there as an absolute being having height, weight, shape, form, yet in the Catholic religion they have innumerable idols that are supposed to depict God the Father and Christ the Son, or usually Mary and the Son. And of course they believe that both God the Father, since Christ plainly said uh, that he was the stamped impress and the exact similitude of God the Father, has a human form and shape. But even in this article that I read to you, they, they come close, but they don't quite get over the edge of defining that the Holy Spirit has a human shape. 
in the same way that God the Father and Christ the Son in the Bible are defined as having a shape like we humans and having said, let us make man in our image. So God gives the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. That certainly is not capable of someone understanding it as being a separate person of the Godhead. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter for a moment. 1 Corinthians 12, and then one more scripture to conclude. Concerning spiritual gifts, spiritual presence or blessings, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. And then he went on to say there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Verse 4. And in verse 5, there are differences of administrations, deeds, the way you serve, but the same Lord. And there are differences or diversities of operations, functions. But it is the same God which works everything in everyone. In other words, all in all. Works every deed, every action through every individual. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith. Faith is a gift of God that comes into your senses through the channel of God's Holy Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. Now these are gifts, these are attributes, these are not fruits. There's a total difference. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of languages. And to another, the interpretation of languages. But all of these work that one and self-same spirit, dividing or distributing to every man individually, severally, as he, God, will. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Again, a spiritual analogy. Now, the way you light up a light bulb, an incandescent light bulb, these are, of course, gas, and there is gas there with an electrical charge that actually ignites the gas, and electrical charge at the other end, positive and negative, and keeps that gas that is enclosed in an absolutely airtight tube illuminated and glowing softly, and so they are called by a different name. There are all kinds of neon and fluorescent and different kinds of gases that are used in fluorescent lights and neon lights. But an incandescent bulb is merely a little tiny wire that is wound around in a certain way that merely heats up and gets very, very hot and glows. And after a certain number of hours of getting hot and cold and hot and cold and hot and cold, it'll finally get brittle. One day you'll turn it on and go, beep, it'll get extra bright for just one split second, and then it pops and it's dead and it's worn out. But the way that bulb lights up, the way it is energized, is exactly the same way that we as human beings are given gifts of God's Spirit and are given the fruits of God's Spirit to manifest to each other and to the world and to other people who have need. And that is because as a, an electrical current from these wires that we see that plug into the wall has two little plugs there and then a ground so as to protect it in the case of a short and is actually flowing from positive back to negative, and you can feel it, and it is a current, because you can stick this finger here and that one there on something else, it'll flow right through you. You've all had the experience of getting an electrical shock at one time or another in your life, and if you got a bad one, it wasn't a bit of fun. My uncle one time forgot about his own electric fence. He was trying to keep the calf out of the orchard, and he went out there to cut a bunch of wet hay, and it was clear over his face, and he was walking along like this, and that thing hit him about right here, and he was dripping wet. 
and it knocked him clear out and put him in flat on his back in bed and just barely came close to killing him. Almost stopped his heart because that was a pretty powerful charge he had going through that electric fence to keep those calves away from areas he didn't want them wandering. So you all know the principle of the way a bulb lights up and that that current has to flow through that element and light it up and flow back to the source from whence it came. And so it is of the Holy Spirit. God does not pour out the Holy Spirit just like emptying a certain essence into a cup, which you then walk around with as if you have it. You only retain the Holy Spirit as you give it out and as it flows through you and increases the demand. The supply of God's Holy Spirit is exactly equivalent to the demand. And so when you read in the 25th chapter of Matthew, and you read of those whose lights are about to go out, of the virgins who are tired and drowsy and their oil is just about gone from the vessel, you're reading of people who have ceased to study the Bible, who have ceased to pray on their knees to God, who have ceased to be in contact, in close touch with Almighty God, and who have ceased to function as a Christian in good spiritual deeds, in deep concern, and in a, a great and a good generous spirit toward other people, giving to others, helping others, serving others, having those not habits but deeds of God's Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, mercy, meekness, faith, etc., in the fifth chapter that I was going to turn to, turn to in the book of Galatians. And those deeds flowing out cause a demand. And that demand will be met as you go before God on your knees and ask for more of God's Holy Spirit. We are baptized, that is, plunged into, immersed, and become a member of God's church, one body, by God's Holy Spirit. And it says in Acts 5.32 that the Holy Spirit of God is that Spirit which is given to those who do obey God. The Holy Spirit of God is God's power. It is His energy. It is his life principle. It is that spiritual power transcending nuclear energy, because nuclear energy is something which God has created by creating helium and hydrogen gas, causing the fusion of those two elements, which produces heat beyond thousands of degrees centigrade, as it is 700 and whatever it is, I forget how many is it seven million degrees? I've forgotten my astronomy at the core of the earth. I forget what they claim it is or what it might be at the core of a gigantic supernova out there in the universe somewhere that is bigger than our entire solar system put together. Now, since God made all of those things and they operate and are upheld by the word of God and by his power, how much greater is the spiritual force or energy that it took to bring into being all known power, force, or energy with which we can deal. Nuclear energy, electrical energy, the energy from propulsion or the burning of fuels or the explosion of gases or dynamite or various substances, forces and powers with which we are familiar in our mundane human physical experience are but a tiny little match in a vast darkness to the incredible power of God's Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of Almighty God is the life-giving principle, force, energy, mind of Almighty God in the same way that a father is able to give a portion of his life physically through cellular, molecular structure with DNA with a little pattern there 
with a portion of the very body of the Father, which is a living portion of the Father, uniting with a living portion of human female egg of the mother, and recreate a human life of infinite capabilities, intelligence, energy, long life, so much ahead that can be accomplished and to be on the exact same equal plane with the father and mother, so God the Father is able to impart and to implant in our minds a part of his very life and nature which defies our human nature and creates in us a completely different creature that is not normal, not carnal, not selfish anymore, not human, but can have all of these wonderful attributes which are not normal or natural to we human beings. There's no more perfect example of carnality than a little child. My little grandson, all of your grandchildren, your children, my children when they were little, myself when I was little, all of us, as precious and sweet as we were to our parents at that age, are perfect carnality. The concept to a little baby of having patience because mama might be tired and not crying when they're hungry is as foreign to them as any concept could ever be. And so actually, unless or until we have ever received God's Holy Spirit, that same concept of giving instead of getting, you know, of, of giving away instead of grabbing or taking, of serving and helping instead of being served and waited upon, is just as foreign to us, unless or until God's Holy Spirit is simply changed that basic human nature.